Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Good morning. Good morning to those of you uh, watching online. My, my wife, Christina, when uh, her aunt tells the story that when she uh, got married on her wedding day, uh, Christina's grandfather pulled her aside at the reception. Uh, so uh, she had just married his son. So he, he pulled her aside and he put his arm around her and welcomed her to the family. And he said, uh, enjoy this moment. Enjoy, enjoy your wedding day because the rest is gonna be like a freight train, it, right? And it's true. Uh, life, life comes at us fast. It, it picks up pace and it feels relentless. Uh, we get married and then all of a sudden jobs and kids and mortgages and recessions and health problems, life just barrels down on us. And rarely do we have the time to step back and say, what am I doing? How is this going? Why am I behaving the way that I am? Why do I do the things that I do? Right? We're, we're way more reactive than we are proactive because life is just relentless and we're hanging on for dear life. And if you think about that, that metaphor, I think, I think Christina's grandpa was right. Uh, who's driving the train is going to make a really big difference. If you are under the impression, if you are living in, in such a way that you think you're at the driver's seat, then there's a lot of responsibility there. A lot is on you. You have to pull the right levers and push the right buttons. You have to get that train where you want it to go. You have a destination in mind, and you got to do the right things to get there. And everybody else on the train, they better follow. They better do what you want them to do to help you get that train where it's going. But as Christians, we're not driving the train, are we? We know that God is in control. As Christians, we believe that there is a good, gracious, all-powerful God who's sitting in the, in the driver's seat. We're in 1 Peter, and, and Peter says that as Christians, we've been born again to a living hope. And we have a, a salvation that's being guarded for us until the, until the last time. Right? As Christians, we know what the destination is. It's eternity with Jesus. And we know we're going to get there. And we know that Jesus is going to get us there. And that we can trust him to get us there. And that, that whatever that path looks like, Jesus is in the driver's seat, and so it's going to be okay. And as, as Christians we can know 
that I don't have to drive. I don't have to be in control. I can let God be in control, and I can embrace the role that he has given me. I can look to Jesus and say, okay, how do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? And then I can trust that I can do that and still get where I want to go, right? So in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 that we're going to look at this morning, Peter takes that idea of, of God's control, God's good purposes in our lives that he's built up in chapters 1 and 2, and he applies that to marriage. He says, what does it look like to be a wife who trusts that God is in control? What does it look like to be a husband who trusts that God is in control? Okay, so we're going to look at that this morning. Trusting God's control and providence, wives are called to patiently follow their husbands in submission and to avoid the sinful tendency to control and manipulate. And husbands are called to lovingly lead their wives and to avoid the sinful tendencies to be passive and ignore their responsibility to lead or to be aggressive and use their authority to abuse and dominate their wives. They're able to avoid both of those things. Now, I, I do want to say something to folks that are not married. Maybe you're single or divorced or widowed. And that same principle applies to you, that God's in the driver's seat, right? As a Christian, if you're not married, God is in the driver's seat there, right? You are where God has you. Your current life circumstance is God's best good plan for you today. It's not out of his control. He has you where he has you, and he means for you to depend on him and to display the hope that you have in him to the world in a way that shows off God's glory. And whether you're married or not, why, women, you will see a lot of things in, in verses 1 through 6 that just apply to all women. And men, you will see a lot of things in verse 7 that just apply to all men. So we'll all see ourselves in, in this text. So let's read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let's begin in verses 1 through 6 by looking at the godly wife. What does it mean to be a wife for the Lord's sake? So verse 1, 
Peter says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. The likewise, that takes us back to last week's passage, chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter says uh, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So this whole section is dealing with this idea of submission and and roles and, and who has authority and who doesn't and what that should look like. And it's really important to see that Peter begins that by saying that as Christians, you're called to be subject for the Lord's sake. And that's, that's true here in, in chapter 3. Wives, when, God, when Peter says, be subject to your husbands, it's for the Lord's sake. So when you submit, and we're going to talk about what that means in a minute, when you submit to your husband, you are ultimately submitting to the Lord and to his design for your life. You come under, so uh, that, that word be subject to, that's from the Greek hypotasso. Uh, so think hypothermia, right? Hypothermia, your temperature is underneath what it should be. It's below what it should be. So hypo, uh, when, when you as a wife come under your husband's leadership, it's not because he's better than you. It's not because... Uh, he's smarter than you or any, anything like that. It's because God has called you to. And God is infinitely wise and good and trustworthy. You can do that. You can submit to your husband because you believe that if God has called you to it, then it is good. Then it is his best good plan for you. So biblical submission for women, for wives, is not blindly following your husband, right? We never, wives are never called to follow their husbands into sin. We, again, because you're submitting to the Lord ultimately, and so the Lord never calls you to sin. So we're not, you're not blindly following your husband. You're not surrendering your personhood to him. Instead, you're thoughtfully intentionally affirming his leadership, you're supporting him, and you're cheering him on toward his own personal godliness, and you're cheering him on as he seeks to lead your family toward godliness. And it's important to point out here that Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Women are not called to be subject to men right? A wife is called to be subject to her husband, right? So this is a very narrow calling. Peter moves on and he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. One without a word. That is really counterintuitive, right? That is not how we normally think. The natural tendency, wives, is to talk your husband into the place you want him to go, right? You know where you want the train to go, and you know what he needs to do to get there, 
right? Because again, the natural tendency is I got to get into the driver's seat. And if I'm in the driver's seat, he better get on board, right? And so you're going to talk him in to the place you want him to go. When you deeply trust God's plan and God's design, if you really believe that he's in control, then you no longer need to be in control. You don't need to steer him, your husband, with many words. I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to talk until I get it. I'm going to wear him down with my words. As, as a Christian, you don't have to do that. Perhaps the most difficult situation that a Christian wife can be in is when her husband is not a believer. Right? Peter, Peter says, even if some do not obey the word. So if, you're, if your husband is not trusting Christ, that's incredibly difficult. And I know that that's true of women in our church. Yet even here, even in that situation, Peter says, you can trust God's plan and God's providence. You don't have to pile on the words. You can entrust him to the Lord and you can play the role that God has given you as a loving, supportive wife. And then your behavior and your demeanor can make the gospel more plausible and more attractive to your husband. And here's the important thing. You can let the Lord work on his heart. Right? We believe that we don't save people, don't we? We, we believe that we don't get people to heaven. Jesus gets people to heaven. And so wives don't have to get their husband to heaven. They can trust the Lord and ask him to do the work. They don't need to steer him with an overwhelming amount of words. And that, of course, doesn't mean that women can't talk to their husbands. Sorry, husbands. Right? We're going to get to that in verse 7. Uh, women, of course, are called to share the gospel with their husbands, to tell their husbands about Jesus and, and share how he's changing them. But they can say that, and then they can trust that the Lord will do the work Verses 3 and 4, uh, Peter changes his, his focus. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So now Peter focuses on, on a woman's adorning. Uh, again, the same principle applies here. Because God is in control, because a woman is finding her uh, identity in Jesus, because she's depending on Jesus and looking to Jesus, she is free from the tendency to find her value in her appearance and to use her appearance to manipulate. Peter, Peter talks about adorning, and so this is a heart issue. The issue is not how a woman does her hair, how she wears her jewelry, what clothing she wears. 
It's what's going on in her heart that's leading her to dress that way, right? So, so we can't look at a woman and know what's happening in her heart, but God can, right? The hair and jewelry and clothing isn't the issue. The heart is the issue. She's finding her value in her appearance. That's, that's where the trouble comes in. 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That, we have to have that in our, in our heads. We have to understand that. As, as Christian women, you need to understand that the outer self is passing. Our bodies will deteriorate. And it's what's going on inside that matters to the Lord, right? The Lord is making us new day by day by his spirit. And look at what Peter does with that reality. At the end of verse 4, he says that this imperishable beauty in God's sight is very precious. So women, you can ask yourself, whose eye am I trying to catch? Right? As a Christian, you have God's eye. He is looking. He is noticing Culture tells women to find their worth in their bodies, to chase after the approval of others. And God, as your loving Father, He sees the inner change being worked by His Spirit. He sees you becoming more like Jesus, looking more and more like Him. He sees that and he loves it. It's precious to him. He delights in it. And if you deeply believe that, then the need to adorn yourself externally changes. The pressure is gone. He sees your inner nature and it's of great worth to him. So just a little aside, let's help little girls see this, right? Let's help them understand this. Let's teach girls from a young age that the body they are in is the one that has been given to them by a good and gracious and loving and wise father. Let's affirm their outer beauty, but focus on their character. Let's, let's teach them that who they are before the Lord matters infinitely more than how they look. Peter moves on in verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So Peter says, godly women have always done this, right? This has always been God's design for wives, all the way back to the Old Testament. And he points out Sarah as an example. And if you've read your Old Testament, you think, Sarah? Really? That's your first choice, Peter, right? When you think of a submissive wife, you go straight to Sarah. Sarah is not the first person that comes to my mind as a submissive wife, if you, if you read the book of Genesis. Her story is complicated. She was an imperfect woman with an imperfect husband. 
They had a they had a checkered record, right? So what's Peter doing? Why would Peter use Sarah and Abraham as her example for a, for a godly marriage? Because Peter is looking at the big picture trajectory of Sarah's life. If you step back and look at Abraham and Sarah's story, what you see is God calls Abram, right, before his name's changed to Abraham. Genesis 12, God calls Abram and says, Abram, leave your father's house, leave your father's country, and go to the land that I will show you. And I'll bless you, and I'll make, you into a, I'll make your family into this great nation, and I'll bless the world through you, right? So God speaks to Abram, and gives Abram this calling on his life and on his family. Abram communicates that to Sarah, and Sarah says, yeah, let's go. Right? Sarah follows her husband as God leads him in the family. Right? And there's a lot of bumps in the road. There's a lot of moments where Sarah doesn't do a great job following Abraham, and Abraham does a really poor job leading Sarah. But the overall trajectory is toward that faithfulness and toward that trust and dependence, right? And so slowly, God, pro- God fulfills his promises to Abraham and to Sarah, and Abraham and Sarah continue to trust even though it's up and down for them. So Sarah continues to trust her husband with the Lord's calling on their family's life. And so she is following her husband as the leader, calling him Lord, right? This, this, uh, this phrase of respect, right? She's, she's respecting her husband and his calling, And the fact that Peter chooses Sarah and Abraham ought to be an encouragement to us. They both failed to be godly spouses multiple times in multiple ways, but God kept at them. God kept working on them, and God kept working in them. And so if God can use Abraham and Sarah, he can use you. He can continue to work on and change you and your life and your marriage. Then Peter concludes the section on with directed towards wives, and he says, You are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So if if a godly woman is grounded in the hope of the gospel and and deeply believes in the sovereignty of God, she can walk in obedience and she can be free from that fear because she's not in control. She doesn't have to try to be in control because she trusts the Lord with whatever comes next. Peter shifts in verse 7, and he looks at husbands. And we might be tempted to think, well, why do wives get six verses and husbands only get one? Right? So he spills a lot more words towards wives, but if you look at the calling and the responsibilities, there's a lot for both. Right? This is a high calling for husbands. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So a godly husband is called to be neither dominant and abusive or passive, but they're called to lead and understand and honor their wives. 
And we do need to see that in, in verse 7, Peter does not tell husbands to submit to their wives. He does call them to lead. The scripture does point us toward male headship in the home, right? We, we have to see that. We have to acknowledge that. But we have to understand what it means. They're not called to submit, but they're called to exercise God-given authority over their wife in an honorable way that leads to her flourishing. So the important piece, the most important piece in verse 7 is when Peter says, wives, he tells husbands that their wives are heirs with you of the grace of life. This is the core of his command to husbands. He, Peter reminds husbands of ultimate reality. He says, you have been born again to a living hope. Husband, you are an heir of the grace of life. You have been redeemed by King Jesus, and you will reign with him forever. He is in control of your life, and he is working for your good. And he's doing the same thing for your wife. Just as much as you are an heir of the grace of life, so is she. So there's this call to submission, but you see the, the equality and dignity do you see how God uh, values both equally? She is an heir. She has been redeemed by Jesus and belongs to him. She is dearly loved and esteemed by God. And so treat her that way. Treat her as if she is an heir of the grace of life. Don't forget that. Your leadership in the marriage is given by God as a stewardship. And so you need to use it to help your wife to flourish and grow in her affections for Jesus. This is the pattern in the entire Bible when it comes to leadership. Anytime God gives someone authority, they are called to use that authority to bless those that they are in charge of, those that they have leadership over. And if we don't do that, then we're not using the authority right, and God doesn't want us to have it. Because you are an heir of the grace of life and because your wife is also, you trust his plan and his design and you're free from the temptation to be passive and disengage from your marriage and you're free from the temptation to be aggressive and dominate your wife. And instead, you're going to pursue empathetic, grace-filled leadership that blesses your wife and honors Jesus. Peter tells husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. As husbands, we need to be students of our wives. Who is she? How is she wired? What does she need? What are her stressors? What are her joys? And we have to constantly be learning because our wives are constantly changing as life circumstances change. Husbands, how does your wife feel about her work-life balance? How, uh, what goes through her mind when you're getting ready to spend a weekend with your parents? How does she feel about her relationship with your adult children? Too often as men, we don't ask. We don't want to know. We don't listen. We don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about it. 
Empathy is not natural for most of us as men. And that's not an acceptable situation for Christian husbands. We can't settle for that. We are called to do the hard, good work of getting to know our wives so that we can understand them and know what they need and respond to them and lead them in a way that's going to bless them. Next, Peter says, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Uh, husbands, next, when, when it's your wife's birthday, why don't you post that on Facebook? Hey, happy birthday to my weaker vessel, right? It's not going to go well. It won't be received well. What does Peter mean that women are the weaker vessel? This is a, this is a loaded phrase, and we have to understand it well, or we're going to get into a lot of trouble, and we're going to use it poorly, right? So what does it mean that women are the weaker vessel? I was thinking of different categories and, and, and asking, are women weaker in, in these, in, in what categories can we say that women are the weaker vessel? So think uh, physically, economically, socially, mentally, and emotionally. Which of those categories is it true that women are the weaker vessel? We have to ask that, those questions because how we answer that is going to have a huge implication. Women are not the weaker vessel mentally or emotionally. We just don't see that in Scripture. Scripture speaks of women and men who are wise and who are foolish. And Scripture speaks of both men and women who are emotionally strong and emotionally weak. So it's just not a category for Peter that he's, that he's considering. Physically and economically and socially, I think that's where Peter's going here. So think about this. Historically speaking, in general, husbands are typically stronger physically than their wives. Right? That's just how men and women work. And historically speaking, men have had more economic and social or cultural power. Right? Historically speaking, men earn more. In, historically speaking, men earn and women don't oftentimes. Right? So that, that's a power imbalance. Right? And culturally or socially, historically speaking, men have had more power. Right? Men can testify in court. Men can own property. Uh, men can vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? And that's not as true in our culture. But historically speaking, that's the case. And so those are three areas where men can dominate their wives, and Peter says, don't. Just because you're physically stronger than your wife, do not abuse her. Just because you earn more money, don't lord that over her. Just because you have more social standing, don't take advantage of that. Instead, honor your wife in those areas. And uh, the, the word there, uh, 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 showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, that word woman uh, actually translates uh, a Greek word that could be translated like femininity or femaleness, right? Uh, so what Peter's saying 
is husbands should celebrate and praise the God-given femininity of their wives, the fact that they are female. We should honor that and celebrate it instead of abusing or resenting it. As husbands, we ought to praise God for our wives' femininity, right? We can look at our wives and say, she is not me. Praise God. She is different from me. God has wired her differently than he has wired me, and it is a good thing. It's not something to resent or be frustrated by. It is something to honor and be excited about. And Peter says, he, he closes this, this verse telling husbands how to, how to love their wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does prayer have to do with our marriage? Why does Peter tie the effectiveness of a husband's prayers to the way that he relates to his wife? Prayer is the most intimate way that we relate to God. We stand before God in prayer. He sees us in prayer. In prayer, it's just you and God. There's no hiding in prayer. God sees you as you are. There is no hiding the nature of our marriages from God. As husbands, our extended family, our coworkers, our friends, our church, they might not know what our marriage really looks like. They don't know how we treat our wives behind closed doors, but God does. God sees how you interact with your wife. God sees how you relate to her as her husband. You can hide it from other people, but you cannot hide it from God. And, and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so if you are behaving toward your wife in a way that is contrary to what Peter's laying out here, we can't expect to go to God and have him just hear us and, and receive us like nothing's going on. One commentator says that when a husband is not walking according to verse 7, God interrupts his relationship with that husband until the situation is resolved. Right? God is going to oppose you in your prayers if you are passively disengaged from your wife or dominantly abusing her. Right? On the flip side, what a grace it is to know as a husband that if you are seeking to follow God's plan, if you are seeking to walk in obedience in your marriage, not perfectly, but in humility, the Lord is listening to you. The Lord is hearing your prayers, and often they're going to be prayers for help, right? Right? We, we need God in our marriages, and, and if we're seeking to walk in obedience, he's hearing that prayer, and he's delighted to answer it. So let's, let's uh, close this, this section. Women are called, wives are called to, to follow their husband's leadership, to trust God with their marriages. Husbands are called to lead their wives in this honorable, careful way. This whole section, last week, uh, chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through the end of chapter 3, it's all about submission 
And, and it's all about God-given roles. And in the flow of 1 Peter, it's tied to our witness. As a, uh, it's tied to our witness to unbelievers. The reason that we're called to submit and lead and, and play out these roles well is as a witness to unbelievers. When we ignore the roles that God has laid out for us as men and women who are under his authority, when we push God out of the driver's seat and we try to get behind the controls, we undercut our witness. There's nothing compelling about us. If we're living like we are in control, like we're trying to steer the ship, we just look like everybody else because that's what everybody else is trying to do. But if we are trusting that God is in control, that we have been born again to a living hope, that we don't need to call the shots and we can follow his calling on our lives and submit to the roles that we've been given, we begin to look different. The gospel begins to look compelling and people begin to, to wonder what's happening to us and eventually, more people will find hope in Jesus, and he gets more of the glory that he deserves. Let's pray. Father, who, who among us matches up to this passage? Who, who can say that they are the perfect picture of a godly wife or husband? Lord, you are gracious to us. We know that we fall short in many ways. We know that we forget these realities often. We know that we quickly try to get into the driver's seat. And so I pray that you would help us to step back, help us to have a deep understanding of and, and joy in your sovereign goodness, to let you lead and to, to humbly, joyfully follow. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.